A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We here at the NeuroNerds stand with our black brothers and sisters. We want to use our podcast as a platform to amplify black voices. This is the first in a series of interviews I'm going to be doing with black stroke and brain injury survivors. In the first episode in this series, I'm interviewing my dear friend, Courtney Washington, a stroke survivor from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Lauren. And we are the, the Neuro Nerds. Yes, that was on time. I feel pretty good. On, I feel pretty good about that. Neuro Nerds. All right, welcome to a very special episode of the Neuro Nerds. It's a much more reserved Joe than you guys normally get. Normally, a lot more boisterous, but considering what's going on in the world. I thought it was a great opportunity for me to use this platform to gain perspectives from so many other people out there and help other people understand what's really going on. So being a a brain injury survivor, it's hard enough dealing with your normal day to days. Now, being a brain injury survivor and enduring what's going on in the world right now, it's kind of crazy. Now, think about being a brain injury survivor in the world today, being a black woman. So (laughs) it's beyond insane it must be beyond stressful and to give us some of that perspective is one of my favorite people in the world my beautiful friend courtney washington what's up courtney hey joe how are you i i I wish i could say i'm in an amazing place i'm not it's this has been very heavy this has been very overwhelming to say the least you know Mm -hmm. and i wanted to um thank you for being on and thank you for doing this um very unique a uh, uh, episode of the neuro nerds where I think I, I kind of want to just gain your perspective being a black woman stroke survivor from Atlanta, living in the world, going through recovery in the current state of the world through, through COVID through um, injustice, uh, through racism, uh, all the craziness. So 
Um, if you wouldn't mind, give us a, a, a little background of who you are as a person, Court. Okay. Well, my name is Courtney, like Joe said. Um, I'm from a small town outside of Atlanta, Georgia, called Griffin, Georgia. Um, it's a very southern rural town. And I'm sure you can all hear my accent. The, the um, southern drawl. Is that what they call it? <laughs> uh-huh. Southern drawl. Um, so I'm from there. Then, you know, I left to go to college. Um, then I went to graduate school and got my master's in social work. Then I worked in prisons for a long time. Then I went back and decided to get my doctorate in social work. So I'm also a therapist. Um, and I guess just a little background about my family. I think I have an, I don't know. I'm very proud to be Southern. Like, I don't think I'd want to be from anywhere else in the country. But it is an interesting dynamic being a black woman from the South, having parents who are from the South, because nobody in my family really participated in the Great Migration. I don't know if people really know what that is. No, I actually don't. Okay, the Great Migration is when a lot of people from the South, black people from the South, migrated to cities like Detroit, Chicago, and a lot of other cities like in the Midwest from the to kind of to seek better opportunities. So your family is is born and raised in Atlanta. Like that's just been home. No, my dad was born and raised in Griffin, Georgia. It's actually, I'll try to say this succinctly. He was born in Griffin, Georgia. And Griffin, the land that my parents currently live on is the land that my family was freed on. So oh, wow. in 1877, my great, 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 great grandparents, once they were freed were able to work the land, make the money, and buy like our family cumulatively bought over 300 acres. Oh my god, that's a that is a movie, by the way. That's incredible. And then that's just my dad's mom's side. Then you go to his father's side, and after Reconstruction, my great great grandfather J.I. Washington was in the state legislature. He went to University of South Carolina. Like he was born in 1864, so he was born right before the Emancipation Proclamation. He read the law there. He became a very like influential lawyer in South Carolina. He had held a lot of government positions, and this was all during Reconstruction. I don't think people really realize what Black people were doing during Reconstruction. Like you know, people you had senators, congressmen. Like people were really starting to, I guess, achieve a lot during Reconstruction. And then all of a sudden it was like snatched away from people. And then I can't forget my mom's family. Like my mom is from Birmingham. So listening to her stories are like, oh my gosh. It's just, it's like a, a lesson in civil rights. Right. Listening to both my parents, but especially her, because Birmingham, or as it was called, Bombingham. Wow. Where she grew up, her parents were both teachers, but her dad wouldn't get paid enough as a black male teacher. So he had to become a bartender. So he was the head bartender at the um, country club there. They lived in a really affluent neighborhood with mm-hmm. a lot of civil rights leaders, and it would get bombed or shot up very frequently. Like, oh my gosh, weekly, nightly. So the fathers in the neighborhood had to like have armed patrols to keep them safe because the KKK didn't like that. They were black people who had houses with like pools 
and things of that nature. Wow, that's just that's so, make, yeah. that makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's really interesting, and um, like I'm very fortunate and blessed that I think I was going through it today with my dad. Like going back probably five generations, everyone in my family has gone to college. Like my great 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 grandparents went to college, and then it just started from there. They sent their kids to college, and then they sent their kids to college. That's that's so beautiful. Really- that's your parents are warriors because the things that they yeah. must have gone through the things that they must have heard even hearing that your mom had to deal with bombs like literal fire bombs right i mean literal fire bombs is what that's what would go on in their um neighborhood and her grandfather was i don't know if people people should be familiar with the 16th street bombing that happened yes yes Birmingham, the four little girls well that's the church her grandparents went to and her grandfather was the head of the trustee board my mom knew most of the families of the little girls who she was a lot older than them. So she knew all them. And it's just when I sit and I talk to my parents and I see my parents, I mean, they didn't want their kids to still be dealing with this. But when I asked them the other day, I was like, did you ever really think it would change? They were like, "Mm, not really. They're like, when you just see the, but it's so funny, too, because my family is very light. So when my dad was born, mm-hmm. he hates me telling this story all the time. They put him, they couldn't find him in the hospital. Because, of course, the hospital had two different nurseries, a black nursery right. and a white nursery. Well, he was so light, they put him in the white nursery. Wow. And they couldn't find him for a while. And then they found him and took him back to, like, at that time, it was called the colored nursery. Oh my gosh. And I just asked me the other day, I was like, well, dad's how's this, how is this quarantine to you? And he was like, shit, Courtney, I've been quarantined most of my life. He was like, I couldn't go places. I couldn't drink in water. I couldn't drink water fountains. Couldn't try on clothes. I couldn't look people in the face. I couldn't do this. And then you talked to my mom. She was like, we couldn't go to the amusement park. We couldn't do like a lot of things that you think kids just should be able to naturally like do right it couldn't but they're both are very quick to say but i had such a good childhood my parents insulated me like i knew what was going on i knew i wasn't wanted here but my parents made such a good life for me isn't that incredible like even the things that they went through like the the fights that they had to go through to make a to make sure that you had a better way i kind of went um obviously nowhere near the same thing but i grew up in a crack neighborhood because my mom was really poor, you know, and I didn't know I grew up in a crack neighborhood until I went back years later. And I was like, oh, this is a crack neighborhood. I had an amazing childhood. I had so much fun. I never really was able to do certain things, but I didn't know why. I just knew that that just, you know, it was a, a danger thing. You must have gone through that, too, you know? Um, I think I did. I definitely did. I, my family was always very, very clear. My dad was like, Courtney, I, like as a young kid, because my parents sent, I went to Montessori school for like preschool. Then I went to one of the like elite private schools in Atlanta from first grade to 12th grade. So I was always around a diverse group and mostly white people. Right. When I was little, my dad was like, listen, sweetie, no matter how many letters you have before your name, 
after your name, how many zeros you have in your bank account, how light you are, how light your eyes are, you're black. You have to remember you're black, know you're black. The things your friends can do, maybe you can't do them. You just can't. See, that's what a lot of people don't understand. People don't understand that. Even how, how you said your parents, they didn't have like a normal childhood. They weren't able to do things that kids are just allowed to do. Right. Even though you were allowed to do these things, there were still some things that you had to be careful about. You kind of almost had to walk on eggshells. Oh, yeah. Like I knew, I can remember, and this isn't like a danger thing on the outside. It's just the way I, like when I was studying school, the way when I was writing a paper about, how different ethnicities and races um, like not punish, well, like discipline their children. Right. It was like, you notice that white kids get to walk around the world with like a freedom and an ownership that you don't have because the world wasn't made for you yes. or by people who look like you. <clears throat> so a lot of the times your parents are more corrective with you is because they're preparing you for the world, trying to protect you. It's like, yes. oh, no, you can't do this. It makes me so sad. Can I tell you what's this this is current. This just happened. Did you see um, in Buffalo, the cops that pushed the old white man down? Yes. 75 year old man. Mm -hmm. They with force shoved him to the floor and his head bounced Mm -hmm. off the floor, started bleeding. It was crazy. Okay. Now, Felice and I watched that video Mm -hmm. and immediately now, if you didn't grow up and, and I hate to like put these divides, but it's the reality. If you didn't grow up ethnic, you don't understand. Both of our immediate reaction is, wow, that right. the, the the old man, through no fault of his own, he was just questioning the cops. Like, why are you guys doing it? Like, why can't we do this? He was asking a question. He didn't disperse. And then he was shoved down. But the fact that he walked towards the cops yes. to ask a question, I was very uncomfortable. And Felice and I were like, what what is happening? That is that just speaks volumes, though. You know, now 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 people are seeing. Wait, but he was just asking a question. Yes. That's that's what happens to our communities constantly, every single day. That honestly, that's happening right now. Oh yeah, I mean, it's just, I guess, you know, when you were talking about my child, I just somebody, I was talking to one of my friends from high school, and she was like, "Yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, how we just," and she's white. She was like, "I was just thinking about all this, this, and that," and I was like, "You know what?" I didn't even really notice it because if as a black person, you notice everything that is coming at you and everything that is racist, you'll have no time to do anything else. And I know mm-hmm. that some people that'll sound dramatic and extreme, mm-hmm. but until you've lived it, you don't understand. Like in college, I was very active. Um, my dad would get calls from the Dean of Students quite frequently about me because when I saw racial injustice, I would march my happy ass over to the president's office, the provost's office, anybody's office. I mean, and I would get into it. And some of the other black kids would be like, Courtney, just shut up. Just yes. shut up. Just leave it alone. And my thing was, and I noticed it, and I was like, well, I need to use my privilege because for a black person, I'm almost as privileged as we're allowed to be. You know? That's, Without that is an, uh, that's an unfortunate truth. Right, without ever forgetting who I am. I'm light-skinned, I have light eyes, I come from an educated family, I come from a family that has means. So to me, it was like, well, what's the worst they're going to do? 
they kick me out, my daddy will just pay for me to go somewhere else. But I'm not going to let this stand. Like, if I go to the registrar's office, this is, like, there are many things in college. It was to the point where when they gave me my diploma, the president was like, I'm happy to see you leave. I said, well, I'm happy to be seen going. Like, like just different things would happen. Like, one, I was in a schools, prisons, and public policy class. And we were going to visit a prison. And mind you, I did not go to college in the South. I didn't really experience racism in a different, like, more deep-seated way until I, like, left the South. Because a lot of really? the white people, because a lot of the white people I knew in Griffin, even though it's very, what people would say, it's very rural, it's very, like, stereotypical of what you think of the South, they all knew my family. Okay. So they didn't do anything to me particular. Now in the seventies, my cousin's house was burned while they were in it with by the KKK. While the oh my they got out and the reason they burned the house, he was a teacher. He told the white boy to be quiet in class. The daddy was in the Ku Klux Klan. They set fires at the other side of town to divert the fire department. The fire department oh my god, that's and then burned that's that's evil. Yes. You know, not that not that the KKK is not evil, but that's right. like a that's, specific type of evil. We're gonna burn your stuff, and we're gonna make sure that you have no help. Right. That's that's disgusting. Let me ask you a question now, currently, today. Is there still a, a strong KKK presence in um, Georgia? Um, I believe there. I'm sure that there is. You see a lot of rebel flags still. Okay. Um. People would call my dad's office quite regularly. This was, he retired in 2012, and I would work there periodically answering the phones. Right. Is he the colored dentist in town? Is that that Negro? They, that's they, still a term I mean, that's used? I mean, it's not supposed to be used, but yes, people use it. Wow. They would call him Mr. instead of Dr. Yeah. They would routinely say, no. I don't usually like your kind, but you got me out of pain. How is that? <laughs> You're just sitting there. Like, like when I was in college, I went to go register and I didn't have my college ID. I had my driver's license issued to me by the state of Georgia. My full name, all my information on it. I said, oh, y'all, I left my student ID, but here's my, what's from college? We have to have your student ID, da, da, da. And she's telling me this. A white boy walks up. They don't even ask his name. They register him. Okay. I said, you see that? And I look on her desk and I see a picture. I said, is that your son? Her son was mixed. And this was a white woman. I said, I hope when your son, one day when he gets older and somebody does something to him because he's black. I said, because I know why you're asking me for my stuff. I know why. Because he just came up. Well, we know him. I said, I walk by this office every day. You know me too. And I just gave you a state-issued ID. I said, so you're trying to tell me that one issued by a college is, that's not even like a legitimate form of identification. This is a recognized form of identification. I was like, so one day when your son comes to you and says, mommy, can you believe somebody did this to me? You can look him in the face and say, yes, I can, because I have done that actively to other people who look just like you. Terrible. 
That, that, that is terrible. And it's just stuff. And like, I remember somebody like wrote the N word in the snow. And it was just like everything. And like somebody's room got burned, like a black guy's room got burned. And they just wouldn't do anything. So like my dad flew up there to talk to them. I went to talk to them and it was just always something. And I was always in there just saying like, what are you going to do? Like, you can't like, what is going on? And people would be like, just quiet, just shut up, just be quiet. And I was like, no, I, I can't like, this isn't like, this is 1997. It's not like I'm that old. This wasn't that long ago. To this day, they'll call me and ask me for money. I'm like, listen, I've told y'all so many times. Take my name off that list. I will not give money because I do not want anybody who looks like me to be subjected to the shit you subjected me to when I was there. That's just, it's just terrible. I mean, it's just, and that's what, and that would just happen all the time. You just never felt safe. Like I could just never relax. I don't even remember a lot of my college time because it was so traumatizing. I'm sure you've been in survival mode like since forever because you're a black woman in the South. Well, even everywhere, because a lot of times I'm like people always think, oh, the South is so bad. The South is so bad. Yes, I'm not going to deny that there is horrendous racism and horrendous atrocities have been carried out in the South. But I don't need other areas of the country to act like they can totally absolve themselves of racism because they can't. Right. No, it's it, it's it's almost worse in the spots where they're saying, oh, yeah, but the South is just terrible. It's like, yeah, we have it here and it's underlining. It's just, oh, yeah. it's kind of in the background. It's a whisper, which I actually prefer my racism overt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is just who you are. But also in the South, I don't think people realize Black people and white people interact a lot more than, say, in a Boston. Mm. One of the most uncomfortable places, you can set me on any backwoods road in Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, Louisiana, any of those states. I'll feel comfortable. The most uncomfortable place I've ever felt in my life is Boston, Massachusetts. Wow. When I talk to most black people, I know they are like, you know what? I had the same experience. I talked to friends who went to college there. They're like, it was the worst time of my life. Mm, that's It's awful. Thank you to our amazing community on Patreon for supporting this podcast. You can support us too and get different perks and gifts depending on which Neuro Jedi tier you sign up for. For example, if you're on our Neuro Padawan $5 tier, then you're probably listening to this episode a day early before it's public release. Your support helps us grow and continue to create this podcast. Plus, a portion of the proceeds go to a different cause or individual in the brain injury survivor community each month. Sign up at patreon.com slash the neuro nerds. So after college, mm-hmm. young woman, new to the world. Oh, sorry. This, I can't believe I forgot this from college. I'm driving to the airport. I'm late for, like, I'm late for my flight. I'm coming home for spring break. I'm speeding. A white girl passes me. And then I look in my rearview mirror and I see like two cop cars. I'm like, hmm. Then I see another one come on, like from an on-ramp. I'm like, hmm, what's going on here? So then all of a sudden they turn their lights on. So I pull over. All of a sudden, like in a V formation, like here come officers surrounding my car with their guns drawn. I'm like 20 years old. 
Like I look young now. Can you imagine what I look like at twenty? You look like an infant, I'm sure. And I was like, "What's going on? Like, what is really happening right now?" And they were like, "Speed." I was like, "Okay, but like speeding doesn't like doesn't require that like, amount of force." But then I just wanted to like live, so I was just like, uh, "I mean, because basically, when you're 19, you're still a ba- you're a child. You might want to say you're grown." But you're still a baby. Agreed. And I was just like, what is going on here? Because sometimes I think people like to tell themselves, well, it happens to a certain type of black person. It doesn't happen to me. I mean, my mom has been pulled over driving my dad's truck because she made a turn coming out of the UPS. And they're like, what are you doing? You're coming out of some neighborhood asking her for a bill of sales for the car, like all kinds of things. And it's like, you know, you don't do that to other people. Right. Right. It, it, it's, it's just a lot. And the fact that it's, it's commonplace that this is just a normal thing, you know, and the fact that the intimidation kicks in and you can't necessarily say anything because you're a smart person right. and wor- worst case scenario, something could have happened to you. That's been happening to too many people recently, you know? And, like, I remember talking to my mentor in graduate school, who, like, I just love him to death. And we were talking about race, and he's, like, he's not that much older than me, and he's white. And we were talking, and I was like, here's the difference between me and some people. You know, some people, I've never wanted to be anything but Black. I love being Black. I just really, I'm a Black woman. Whenever people are like, oh, you can choose how you identify yourself, no Black people can't. For your life, for the sake of your life, you better realize what you are and what people see you as. Right. Agreed. Because it really is life. It is a life and death matter. And I was like, I don't see myself any differently than Breonna Taylor. I don't mm-hmm. see myself any differently than Atiana Jefferson, Sandra Bland. I don't think the world looks at me any differently than they look at them. I don't, I assume. Someone doesn't look at me and say, oh, she's got three degrees from really like prestigious schools. She's a therapist. She's all this. They're like, oh, she's a black girl. She probably has a couple kids by a couple different guys. Probably has her own welfare. Like I think of that, but I've always done that because I want to live. Yeah, no, that's, that's, it's so sad. That's what it has to be. But the, the reality is that's what it has to be. You know, I remember um, talking to um, a, a friend and he just didn't understand white guy. <laughs> he just didn't understand. Yeah. But if a cop did this, why wouldn't you just say this? And I'm like, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Well, why couldn't you do this? I'm like, it, it doesn't work that way. Like it, unless you're in that position, unless you actually have a gun drawn on you, unless you're actually pushed down on the hood of a car unless you're actually being spoken to in a certain way. You don't understand. Everybody can say, yeah, but if I was there, you can say that until you're actually in that position, you don't know what it's like. You don't have an option court. You didn't have an option. You didn't, you what's, what's the option. The option is possible. Everything that you've done (laughs) from birth until now, the decisions you've made as a black woman has been literally life or death. Right. And I don't that's heavy. really understand. And you know how I feel about toxic positivity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've regula- regulated me several times. I have a real problem with it. And one thing, and I was having a discussion with somebody else in our community about 
toxic positivity can be deadly for black people mm. because you're like, oh, well, if you just think this, then this is going to happen. Or if you just think it, you know, if you just want it bad enough, like just look at the bright side, you know, make this for you, like turn, be resilient. We've black people were born resilient. You know what I mean? Like, question. You made it to the day you were born resilient. It's a luxury to be like, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to turn this around and do this, and I'm going to make a bad situation do it. We've been doing that for 400-something years. Yeah. What else do you want people to do? And it's like, well, just be positive. Do If you do what you're supposed to and you think positive, and then it translates into people saying things like, oh, well, why didn't they just do this? Like, if he had just done what the cop told him to, it's like, okay, but even when people do everything that you tell them to, even when people abide by the, oh, well, you know, if you think positive and you do this and you do that, then nothing bad is going to happen to you. because It's, you it's also taking the responsibility off of the other side. Right. You know? It's like, why are you asking all the what's and the buts? And I get, you know, it's just very frustrating. It's very tiring. It's tiring having to educate people on your humanity. And I hate when people are like, oh, well, you know, I didn't, um, well, I didn't know until like when I really had a good friend who was black or I had this who was black. It's like, well, why do you have to know somebody personally to realize that they're human? Yes. Their life means as much as you. Like, why did people have to see, and I appreciate the groundswell to a certain extent, but then it also really pisses me off because it's like, why? It's like, okay, Trayvon was a 17-year-old baby who was walking home with Skittles and a fucking Arizona tea. And he got killed by a man who had no authority, no nothing, and who got away with it scot-free and who is now signing Skittles bags for people at conferences. How come, like, that was years ago. How are you just now just so outraged by things that are going on? I mean, this has been going on forever. It, it it hasn't stopped. It's almost gotten worse. The part that really, and it should open people's eyes and it should really, really, you know, it should make you question everything. These were four cops. Mm-hmm. Okay. These were four cops on a, on top of a black man right. who didn't murder anybody. Didn't right. look like he was resisting arrest from every angle you could possibly see. Mm-hmm. Now this cop, he clearly sees he's being videotaped. Clearly. And he's, they still did. This still happened now as difficult as that is to, to, to picture. Now imagine what happens when there's no cameras involved. Imagine what happens when it's nighttime and it's only the person and the police. Just imagine what happens when there's, you're clearly breaking the law. Now you're clearly murdering somebody now. And you think that's acceptable. With, with cameras, imagine what you do when the cameras aren't rolling. That's scary. That it's should scare scary. everyone. Well, it should scare everyone, but the reason it doesn't scare everyone is because it doesn't impact everyone in an equal, proportionate manner. That's been and fucking with me, Court. That's really been really messing with my head. A lot of people need to sit and really reconcile with themselves. Well, why did it take until now for me to care? Yes. Like, why did it take I mean, it's like, yeah, great. I'm one of those people because my dad always raised me like this. Whenever we did something, like he's like, I'm not going to reward you for what you were supposed to do. Right, right. I'm not going to do it. Now, you do something extraordinary, I'm going to reward you. But for what you were supposed to do, 
for what you were supposed to do, which is to think of others as you think of yourself, or at least just give them like the decency of seeing them as human because I see it like I don't have children and you know I've had medical conditions I can't have kids but whenever I see especially young black boys because I've worked in the prison system a long time when I see young black boys walking down the street or like teenagers just having a good time I'm like god I just wish people saw them as fully realized humans who like have fears who have dreams who have hopes who laugh with their friends who are scared of things know like a fully realized human who experiences all the same human things that you experience instead and this is stuff like these aren't just these aren't just things i'm pulling out of thin air all of my studying in my doctoral like most of my concentration during my doctoral studies was on critical race theory mass incarceration and things like that when black kids get to be about like seven years old, people stop seeing them as children. And it switches to you start seeing them as a threat because there's a pathology that criminalizes Black people. So when you see that 13-year-old boy who is like six feet tall, but clearly if you look at his face, you see he's a baby. He's a baby. He's walking down the street dribbling a basketball with his friends and they're just having a good time. I see it as like Black boy joy. But most people see it as, oh, they're trouble what they're up to yeah that's that's sad that hurts that hurts my heart and i hate the the, the double standard you know i i do it, it sucks Here, here's what what really it, it, it fucks with me it does but and i understand it that's the part that really annoys me right how people like the status quo mm-hmm. people like it the way it is right. because it benefits now it, it, i'm it's this is just the reality being a caucasian person in this country you have you're several steps ahead of any other ethnicity specifically being a caucasian male you're just you're you're just tops you just are so that being said why would you want anything to change none of this stuff affects you i mean you wouldn't want anything to change and listen i've lived in new orleans a long time in my life i've been to colleges that were mostly white so i know I have seen white guys interact with police officers in ways that make me shudder because I'm like, <gasps> right. It's shocking. Just like that old man walking towards the cops in riot gear. It it may, it gave me butterflies. Right. But that is, that is like the mildest of the miles. I've seen them in their face. Like, F you, I'm gonna... and you see them and you're just sitting there like Mardi Gras. You see some of the crazy stuff and the cops just laugh it off. A black guy walks by you, does anything. Every single black man I have ever dated, and I have dated lawyers, stockbrokers, um, a lot of law enforcement because I worked with prisons. Even the law enforcement, all of them have been arrested. I can remember going out with a guy I dated for a long time, and he was very highly ranked. He would even have, like, they didn't, they just didn't care. Like if they pulled you over, it's like, here's my badge and stuff. Right. Even when they had his badge, they would still talk to him like he was a piece. That's, you know what I mean? It just makes me so un- un- uncomfortable. I have, I, I'm a kind person, right? You know, for the most part, I think I'm a very kind person. I'm, I'm, I have a lot of empathy. I always put myself in another person's shoes. That's what sucks right now. 
because I'm actually putting myself in these people's shoes and, and it's, it's hard. And I have put myself, well, what if I was some regular ass white dude, right? That people for some reason think I am I'm not Puerto Rican. No, I thought like, like I've always. <laughs> I'm getting court, but if I'm just like a regular white dude, and you know, I never have any issues, I'm shocked. Like I'm just blown away and shocked that wait, police are abusing ethnic people because I, I don't see why would I look for that stuff? It doesn't affect my day to day life. So, but but okay, so I don't I don't agree with that. But like I'm not really going to fight for it because it doesn't really affect me. It doesn't. I'm still living the, the, my normal charmed life, you know, but I think now there's such a groundswell. There's so much noise being made and people are actually opening their eyes, especially the youth. You mentioned, you know, young kids, they're actually taking the social media. They're going to change this world. And I truly believe that, you know, there's, there's something happening. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. As a brain injury or a stroke survivor like myself, it's hard for me to get through reading books due to my injury. But with Audible, I can now enjoy as many books as I want just by listening. Because of my stroke, it's hard to get through reading books. But thanks to Audible, I can listen to stroke survivor Kavita Bossi's book, Room 23. Once it popped up on Audible, I immediately put it on my wish list. Read Kavita's book with us. That's right. The Neuro Nerds have a book club. What a great way for our brain injury survivor community to read books together. And even if you don't want to read the book we're reading, with this free trial, you can select any book of your choice for free. Go to audibletrial.com slash the Neuro Nerds. Boom! Boom! (laughs) (laughs) And then also, um, I think having a pandemic and COVID-19 has kind of shaken people's um, sense of security. Mm-hmm. So people are starting to feel like, oh God, like, okay, yeah, there's a status quo, but even that got shaken up. Like, right. okay, so what's really going on here? So they start to feel threatened because, you know, they're losing jobs in numbers that haven't been seen in this lifetime. Right. And it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe everything isn't as secure for me as I thought. And I think it starts maybe opening your eyes up to what other people might be going through, but then still it's hard for me to reconcile that people just could be so oblivious and in their bubble and still call themselves really good people. Like I just don't get that. And, you know, I had to, I'm so happy that my parents did not, raised me in a way that made me say, oh, well, I don't have to think about other, like, like I'm fine. Right. Like I've got mine. Like we all have ours. Like our family is fine. Nobody in our family does this, this or that. So we're not like, no, we're all black. The same things are going to affect us maybe in different ways. I'm not like even going to say, I know what it's like to have certain things happen in my life. But when I started working in prisons, what would really break my heart is I'm sitting there on AU day, which is when, you know, a lot of people come in and I worked in Louisiana and Louisiana, if people don't know, is like the prison capital of America. Like there are a lot of inmates in Louisiana. So America is the prison capital of the world. So then when you start extrapolating that out, it's like Louisiana is the prison capital of the world. And you sit there and you see these 
young black men come in, like, and they started coming in younger and younger. And I'm working at the maximum security prison in the country. Like, it's the largest maximum security prison in the country. And you see 16-year-olds coming in. And you're like, like, what happened? And then you just, you see generations of families in there. Like, I would know, like, grandfathers, sons, fathers, uncles, cousins, nephews, like, sets of twins. You would see all this stuff. And then you would see men who are some of the kindest men I have ever met. And I know they have made mistakes in life, but everybody has. You know, let's go look at like Wall Street politicians, all them, and go through the mistakes they've made in their lives. You know, but someone in there for life for $40 worth of heroin. Because, and so like when I went back to school and it would just break my heart and I started to like they're in here forever, like just forever. Like they're not getting out. And then you would see the crimes that black guys were in there for. And then you read white guys' records and you see what they're in there for in the time. And then you just see the disparity in the sentences. And so when I went back to school, I really started studying that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, well, people like, well, if black people just don't do this, then they won't get bothered by the police, which is such a fallacy. I'm not going to give people numbers because, you know, some people are like, well, numbers can't be, you know, you can sway them. Right. People are stopped more by, by the police. When they are stopped by the, by the police, they are more likely to get a citation or to get arrested. Once arrested, they are more likely to be arraigned. Once arraigned, they are more likely to be indicted. Once indicted, they are more likely to go to trial because they are not offered the same kind of plea bargains or deals that other people are. So then they're more likely to be sentenced. Once they are sentenced, their sentences tend to be so many times longer than other people's sentences. So you just start extrapolating it out and out. And then like, I remember reading one thing and it just broke my heart because it was like, at some point in their lifetime, one third of African-American males will be under some sort of supervision by a correctional facility. And when I say supervision, I mean parole, probation. Shocking. In yes. jail. Like a third of, the, and I'm when I say that, I mean a third of the total population of Black men at some right. point in time. That is what they project. That is shocking. And it's like when you sit there and people are like, well, if you just, it's like, okay, listen. I have worked on death row. When you see the depravity of some of the crimes that the white people on death row have committed, and then you see the crimes that black people on death row, the discrepancy is so great. I'm talking about depraved things that a writer couldn't even come up with in their mind. And then you see somebody, it's like, oh, a felony in the commission of, of another felony and this and that. And you're like, yeah, the, the only difference is the amount of melanin in the skin of the person committing the crime. Right. I mean, that is the, that is it. And you just sit there and you just see, it's like all these men. And then you have children who are coming to, like, to see a baby have to get their diaper taken off so they can be checked when they come in for visiting. And you see this all the time. And you just see people living lives. And then like so many people have been 
I don't think people really realize how many people have been wrongly convicted of crimes and they end up, it should be the happiest day when you see somebody who you've known for years getting, like being able to go home. But then they're like, Miss Courtney, I've been here for 30 years. My mama's dead. My sisters are dead. Like they were innocent, completely innocent. DNA. What are they going home to? They're like, what am I supposed to do? My family is here. That's like, what am I to do? And then people are just like, well, if they would just do this, what about black on black crime? It's like, okay, that is not the point. If the systemic issues, like when you go back to 1619, when you brought us here, and then you go and then like you have the Emancipation Proclamation and then you have Reconstruction. Then you take that back. You didn't like it because we were doing too well. So then you put Jim Crow in. And then Jim Crow lasted so long. I mean, I think people really think, oh, well, you know, it was a really long time ago. The 60s weren't that long ago. It's so recent. Right. And then once that like started getting phased out, then people were like, oh, well, you know, what we have in 1986 when Reagan came up with the like the drug act and he started doing the different ratios for sentencing between crack and cocaine after Lynn Bias died because that was really like the impetus of it and then that started then you see this explosion in incarceration of black males per year like the weight ratios like it would take a minuscule amount of crack a black man would get like 15 years a white man could have cocaine like kilos of it would get like five i mean the ratios just the weight differentials were just are so are still so yeah there there's a, a reason behind it too and if you even okay. think about drugs cocaine has always been known as at least you know in the ethnic my ethnic community as the white person's drug right. oh yeah and then you know with crack and that's why they did it because crack was a more like black brown people's drug because it's right. And it was cut more. And then they'll come out with things. They're like, oh, okay, well, we're going to start doing this. We're going to start looking over people's sentences, and then we're going to let them out. And y'all know how that goes all too well. They say they're going to let people out, and people think, oh, okay, well, they're going to revisit my sentencing and look at my, you know, and they're going to recalculate it. And I've been in here for 20-something years, so, like, I'm definitely going to get out. No, you're still sitting there in prison. Because they're taking their happy time, like oh well, you know we said it, but it's only for some people. Not no, I, I we're living that right now, unfortunately, with Lisa and and her father. And then you look at other people, rich Caucasian males, you know, i.e., um, uh, Avenatti, Manafort, Cohen. They are severe crimes in comparison, right, to one mistake, and nowhere near. Um, uh, uh, completing uh, their sentence, and they're like just they're out. They're just out. They're just out. You know, and even it's it's just it's just it's frustrating. It's 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 frustrating because you you feel helpless. You know, well, it's it's, heartbreaking too because it's like no one's listening. It's like you keep ringing the bell, you keep ringing the bell, and no one is listening. It's like I've had people ask me like during this week, and I know like I'm starting to flit around, but it's like, well, Courtney, what about you know what do you? about the virus what do you think about this i'm like you know what if i didn't call you to ask you how you felt about 
racism about George Floyd being murdered, about Ahmaud Arbery being murdered, about Breonna Taylor being murdered, and ask you if you agree with that, why the hell would you call me and ask me how I feel about this? Because that's also a protest where some people have rioted. That's that's my that's another huge issue I'm having, and it's it's the way people are wording things. There aren't riots. So they can yeah, they, talk about something else because people yes. are very fragile when it comes to this issue. People don't, it's hard to sit with yourself and really have to reconcile, even if you think you're woke, even if you think you're very liberal or whatever it is you think, and reconcile yourself with some of the thoughts that you have about people that come out in ways that you really don't want to notice in yourself. Look, there, there is... There are protests going on. That's what's happening in our country, all over the place, and literally around the world. There's protests. There are a handful of agents of chaos, people who are opportunists, people who don't really care, and all they want to do is come up on something. They want to cause chaos. Those are the ones that are flipping over cars, lighting them on fire, smashing windows, and stealing things. That is a very tiny percentage of the people out there. So everybody that keeps on saying, yeah, but these riots, how are the riots in L.A.? It's not, we're not having riots. We're having protests, and there are a handful of idiots doing idiotic things. I lived through the actual riots in the 90s here, the the Rodney King riots. And by the way, all this shit is triggering. I had no idea how that impacted me. I didn't know. I didn't realize it until, like, Mm -hmm. the first couple of days of this, I was shell-shocked. Like, I was just, like, literally completely, I I couldn't, Felice is like, hey. We should do this and hey, make sure you know you repost this thing. And I'm like, I I, I couldn't even do it because I was literally right. in in panic mode. I you know you see fires. I lived that you know, and and it, it drove me a little crazy and it really upset me because I was like, have we we haven't grown a bit? Right. We have. I think we have. I really do. I think we have, and I think what's happening now won't happen again. And I I at least I have that hope. Well, you know, my dad was in the '68 riots and he. Uh, he's not that surprised that we're back here now. Oh, because it's like... He's seen a lot. Okay. Colin Kaepernick was a canary in the coal mine. He was telling yeah. you. Like, we've been telling you. He was telling you. But you know what? If you can change... It's just like with his protest. If you can change the narrative and deflect it into something that is more, you know, um, palpable to you and what fits your needs, and it takes the onus off of you. It's like, okay, well, if I can say Colin Kaepernick is kneeling during the anthem, that he's disrespecting the flag, the military, and everything in the national anthem, which there are so many racial overtones to that. Like, there's so many layers. So many. And we could spend five hours on that alone. Then you can ignore the fact that he's telling you, he is screaming out for help in a peaceful way that you did not like, that this is what is going on. This is what's been going on. And let us, I would be remiss as a black woman if I act like this only happens to black men. It does not, I'm here to tell you, it happens to black women too. There is a list that I posted on, I think, of 100 black women and girls who have been killed by the police. I mean, it happens to us too. And it's like, so then if you can kind of divert people's attention, like, oh, well, look at the rioters, look at those looters, look at the savages and the animals who are out there just tearing up the country and burning this beautiful place down. It's like, then you can take it off the responsibility and accountability off of yourself for looking at 
what this country is. America right. has never dealt with its original sin and what it was founded on and how it has broken since its inception what it was supposedly founded on. Liberty and freedom and justice for all because it has not, it has never attained those lofty goals that they claim to have set for them. It was created by men who said they wanted freedom for everybody but then owned Yes. Now, the the most patriotic thing that you can possibly do is protest. Yes, it is. It is to speak your mind, to say, hey, this is how I feel about this. Now, not once ever have I heard anyone during all of this, during this movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, not once have I ever heard only Black Lives Matter. Not once have I heard that. I keep on hearing the all lives matter bullshit. Sorry. What I want to do with that is that again takes away. It was like, well, all it's like, okay. Like people use the um the analogy. If you go to a house, if you go to a neighborhood, someone's house is on fire, and you're like, oh, let's do that. That's the most like, let's get that one right now. It's like, oh, well, why don't we just look at all the houses? We need to water all the houses down. It's like, no, this is the house that needs the attention right now. People right. know I love that. Matter. I, I love that. That's that just speaks volumes. Right. Yes, all these houses matter. And if they were on fire, we should put those houses out. We should, right? The fact is the black community, their house is on fire now. And so they need the attention. But the thing about America is if you never want to get down in the nitty-gritty and deal with the insidious systemic nature that is racism in this country. And I would like implore all people to go and read um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's op-ed in the LA Times from last Sunday, where he really talks about how it's just something that's in the air and you really don't see it because it's so ingrained in America. It is so in the fabric of this country that when you turn a light on and it's, you know how like you can turn a light on and then you see all the dust in the air and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was in the air. But right. Oh, there it is. I see all those foots. Like, that's people people are seeing the dust now. Like you really like there's gonna like America is having a reckoning and it's long overdue. And then you have I mean it's not next- a bad thing. That's the th- people are turning this oh. into like the, the most negative thing in the world. This is not this is how we grow. I had a conversation where mm-hmm. I was talking about my first um interaction with racist cops and I was living in Florida at the time. It was just right. like this really awful another triggering situation had no idea i've been carrying all these years but i have and i i was talking about it and there was a woman on the live i was doing and she said i i don't like hearing about this stuff this this makes me very uncomfortable and i told her i was like yes it should make you uncomfortable and you should listen because that's how we grow and day it was what about a week later she she posted some beautiful thing about how she is grown as a person because this is uncomfortable but these are conversations that need to happen now we need to be uncomfortable now so we're comfortable later on in the future we just have to be we have to grow as a people we have to but then also like it does get very tiring when a lot of the for so long a lot of it has been put on the black community it's like well here's what you have to do here's what you have to do it's like okay we're you can't do anything unless the people who hold the power and the privilege the gate, over the gatekeepers. And when people talk about privilege, privilege is not taking away that white people have never have not had struggles in their life, that they have not had hardships and heartaches. What people mean when they say white privilege is the thing that does not contribute or add to those issues are the color of your skin. 
Yes. Agreed. Agre- 100%. I mean, that's really as simple as it is. I'm not saying, oh, your life is all roses and rainbows because you're being white is not one of those issues. That's not a contributing factor to the hardships in your life. That's that's just just you look around and you're like, okay, like at a certain point, you have to step up. You're going to have to do something. And like as a therapist, like growth is uncomfortable. Change is very uncomfortable for people. But like you said, it's very beneficial. And I just, you know, I do, um, I try to be hopeful because when I think of hope, hope still has struggle within it. But I don't want to get ahead of myself because I think for far too long, we see like little pockets of progress and then we get complacent again. Yes. And then the system is so ingrained and so entrenched that it circles back around. And then it's just a continuation and you're just like, what is going on here? And it's funny that during this whole time, I haven't even mentioned uh, my stroke, but I did notice, like I even like text my doctor the other day because I've had to take a step back from all this. And I'm like, you know, my arm, like my affected arm, like I just feel my whole body like tense. Is, is it, is it, is it, um, um, are you tensing up because you're stressed? Yeah, it's because you're stressed and it's just like, oh my gosh, this again. And like you were saying, you had the conversation, the lady was like, well, I'm just uncomfortable seeing that. Well, imagine what it is like living it. Like, but yeah. we can't turn away. Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we can't say, you know what? This is uncomfortable being a black woman. And I'm, I'm just not going to do it. No, this is and, just what it is for you. And it does have to do with health because, you know, people are always like, well, black people have pre-existing conditions. Well, why do you think we do? Why does that happen? Internalize generational trauma that you carry with you and the things that people witness in their neighborhoods. I mean, I could probably do like 15 hours if you go into like redlining and co- housing covenants and why things are this way, you know, gerrymandering of like all the things that go on and that people are witness to, you internalize it and it does something to your system. And then that starts to be genetically ingrained and your children inherit it. And then they have to deal with the same stressors. My parents are 77. They didn't want their kids, like I te- like I posted the other day, they didn't want their kids to have to continue to prove their humanity. At, like in 2020, I'm 41. Right. I'm tired. I can't imagine how tired my parents are and their friends. Are. Yeah, yeah. It, but the, look, it's it's progress because I I feel there's a lot of progress being made. Um, and there's something different in the air. There there is. I I don't know if you feel that. I feel that there's something different. I really feel that what's going on mm-hmm. is gonna stick more than anything's ever. You know. Um stuck around before because of social media you cannot get away from this right just can't we have to have it translate into policies because the one thing you really don't understand and you have to have people who know how to write policies because a lot of times when people write policies they write them in such a way that there are a lot of unintended and intended consequences of uh policies and that ends us up in systemic issues that are really hard to undo so the policy, I don't think a lot, a lot of people, yes, protesting and awareness is good, but you have to have policies in place. And then people are like, oh, well, you know, voting is crucial. Voting at all levels from your 
municipality or whatever they call it in your area from your city level all the way up like the whole ballot you have to vote because you have to get people in there at all levels so that you can have a bill make it all the way through all levels right so you can have policies come through because you'll have people try to like try to form new policies but if it doesn't get through congress and the senate and then it doesn't get signed by whoever's in charge yeah all of it was for nothing it was all for not you have it's some something is happening though i i I really feel especially with like the next generation those crazy kids i really feel like they're going to be making a huge impact because they're seeing things like even today a few short hours ago, the NFL came out and said, hey, guys, are bad. And I never thought I'd see that. And I'm glad they said that. But then I think this is something that my parents have also always taught me. Don't get your hopes up too bad. You have to see if people are going to follow through with it. Like, Agreed. Is there follow through with the I need to see actions. I need your words and your actions to be congruent. I need right. to be deliberate and intentional and in doing things. So it's like, okay, well, you blackballed Colin Kaepernick and you did all this kind of stuff. So what now are you going to do when players start taking a knee in the fall? The first, the first thing I thought is they slammed Kaepernick. They basically blackballed him from the NFL and he took the brunt of everything. Right. Now they came out and they said, hey, black lives matter. Right. And we were wrong about the protests. So where does Colin Kaepernick fit in this? Exactly. Where does he fit? And I am a diehard New Orleans Saints fan. Oh, I please. New Orleans. I was there for Katrina. I was there afterwards. Drew Brees said the dumbest thing there. almost any athlete in the history of right. sports said. Because I will not say that he did not do so much. He had, He has done a lot for that city, but that city has also done a lot for him. Oh, oh, for for sure. Yeah, but to, for me, two things can be true. You can, because he did so much for that city. And he, like, when I say so much, he's done so much for that city. That doesn't take away from the fact that he said one of the dumbest things I have ever heard. And he also has to remember that city has done so much for him because in San Diego, he wasn't hitting on a lick or anything. At all. <laughs> so, and you see, like, if you looked at, Atlanta, if you looked at all the season ticket holders all over the NFL, I'm sure probably the Saints in Atlanta have the highest ratio, the highest percentage of black season ticket holders of any NFL franchise. Like just being in both those places, I know this. And for him to say that and be so blinded and it was just like, well, that's really what you think. Like, it's fine if y'all are on the field together going for one common goal but when you get out there you don't realize that he's a black man they don't care like malcolm jenkins said like when i take this helmet off i'm a black man in america yes what what made what bothered me again it's that argument it's the weak it's the weak argument Mm -hmm. well you're disrespecting the flag no not once not once was he saying i i'm protesting this flag not once not protesting the military it, it, not, not once. These are weak arguments, and it, it's it speaks volumes about how people feel on the inside. But then also, it's like take into account that a lot of the infantry and people who have been on the front line through almost every war in America have been people of color. 
Don't act yes. like they have, but they were going to fight for freedoms that they weren't even afforded it. Allowed themselves. That's um Mike Wilbon. He hosts on ESPN. Oh, he yeah. hosts a uh, uh, part of the interruption. Yeah. Love him. And he came out and he said, yes, your great grandfather fought in, in the war. He said, my uh, grandfather did the ex- fought in the same war, except when he came home, he wasn't allowed to drink out of the same fountain. He wasn't allowed to shop at the same department store. No. He wasn't allowed the same freedoms that he fought for you and your family to have. Right. So even having that very, that thought that it, it's like, okay, well, you know, we've done the same thing. So we're citizens too. This country was built on the back of the labor. Like the industries in this country, the South, it's just mind boggling to me that people still make comparisons because when you say that, it kind of infers, well, my grandfather will uh, fought in World War II. Okay, great. A lot of people in America's grandfathers fought in World War II. Their fathers fought in Vietnam. And then after that and after that. Right. And they fought for the freedom right. to stand up and protest injustice. Right. And that's what's happening right now. It's it, He still won't we, say racism. He'll say He still will not say racism. Well, again, I lost a tremendous amount of respect for Drew Brees. And it sucks because he seemed like one of the good guys. I do appreciate the apology, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens now. We'll see what happens moving forward. You know, well, you better hope that his teammates accept that apology. His teammates, they went in. And this is what I'm loving too. Not like, you know, in the 90s, the, the Rodney King stuff, athletes didn't take a stand. That's one of Michael Jordan. Uh, yeah. uh, everybody knocks Jordan because he yeah. never really took a stand on anything because back in the day, you had to worry about your sponsorships. You, yeah. He was Which, he was the first one. He was the first one to have, he was like the first billion dollar athlete to have all these sponsors. So now, well, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, you know, rest in peace, like they were allowed to stand up for certain things because he was the the the... He, he set the tone. He set the stage. They saw what he did, and now they were actually able to do these things. If they were the first, he had a tremendous amount of pressure on him. It was hard to be like, oh, yeah, by the way, I don't agree with this. Okay, cool. So Wheaties, no longer sponsoring you. Nike, no longer sponsoring you. know what I mean? Like, it, it was, I understand it. I don't agree with it, but I understand it, you know? Today, athletes are standing up. Like, as a black man, a lot of times, you're put in positions where you are the voice for an, like, they expect you to be a spokesperson for the entire race. It's a lot of pressure to put that pressure on him at that time. Like you said, he didn't have the ability to do it because the repercussions would have been such that they were like, Oh, there he goes. He he was the first, like he was literally now it's commonplace athletes. They just get sponsorships all over the place. Was at a protest yesterday. LeBron is very outspoken. I appreciate that too. I'm not a big LeBron fan, but I appreciate, you know, him uh, socially. You know, hit his, being outspoken and like Dwayne Wade, I appreciate what he's doing for black trans. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because we can't forget how, like the things that black queer people go through. And, you know, when you say black lives matter, it's like every life. And my parents, like, even though my dad is a 77 year old black man from Atlanta, Georgia, he always taught us. If you want civil rights for yourself, you have to want them for everybody else. He was like, I don't care if they're gay. I don't care what it is. He was like, they are people. And that is, he was like, there's no buts about it. He said, how can I be a man who was like dehumanized and still get, but I was dehumanized so much, expect somebody else to deal with that. Look, 
one of my favorite hip hop artists of all time, Tupac Shakur. Mm-hmm. He's the dude. He he said, when I say, you know, um, us and them, it's not black versus white. Mm-hmm. It's like never said black versus white. It's good versus evil. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening today. Today, it's good versus evil. Look, wrong is wrong. Mm-hmm. No matter what color, no matter what sex, no matter what gen, like no matter what, wrong is wrong. And we have to stand up against evil what happened in the last a few weeks what's happened in the last few years it's evil and this evil has to go away good has to triumph we have to win we have to the last 400 years that's what yeah yeah it's it's been a while <laughs> it's 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 been a little bit are you a stroke or brain injury survivor looking for a community and support well the neuro nerds are here to help Join our hashtag Rock Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Rock to connect with other survivors like you. Plus, read other inspirational brain injury survivor stories on Joe's blog at josorocks.com slash Rock, And submit your stories there as well. We want to hear them. And remember, you, you so rock. rock. <laughs> now, okay, so you dealing with this with a brain injury court. Mm-hmm. Have have you know aside of the fact that you know you're like oh wow my affected side is being affected has it been more trying than normal have you had more headaches have you been a lot more mentally um uh have you had the fatigue kick in I mean all of the above like um a lot of people like my stroke was induced by was caused by migraine. I've had a long history of migraines ever since I was a, like a toddler. I've had migraines. And so my doctor really, like, it's kind, it's also very stressful when the thing that caused you so much pain and changed your life in a second is something that you deal with every day. Like, because I have, I've had a headache since December 27th, 2017. Oh my gosh. So when that thing happened, and then like last week after this happened, I noticed like, I was like, ooh, I like the way that feels. So I had to like take a step back and just kind of meditate and, or just try to like, I went outside and I like saged myself and like tried to ground myself because it was just like, I just need some of this tension. Yeah. Leave my does, it, does, it, does, it sca- does it scare you to the point where it's like, I'm, I'm going to end up in a hospital again? Well, you know, you do have those thoughts because you're like, oh, gosh, because like maybe six months after my stroke, I was in the hospital for like six days with a really bad headache. And it was like, I don't want something like that to happen again. So, you know, I talked to my doctor and it's just like it's just stress management. But then, I mean, not to just be the dead. It really is part of the black experience just to carry a lot of tension in your body it just this is what needs to change you know it's it's awful that it's so oh that's just, just how it is right it shouldn't be this way it absolutely should it's not fair there was that i don't know it's a viral video that's gone on it was like a, a football coach and he was like all right you're gonna race for a hundred dollars now they all lined up and he's like if you uh, uh grew up in a two-person household take two steps forward if you had access to free health care take two steps forward and all of the Caucasian children had so many steps. They had such a big advantage. And it just spoke volumes about what it really is. But you know what annoys me about that video? What's that? Some videos like that. If I had been in that 
I would have been at the front of the line, probably. Like I was right, but, close to that. Hunt. But you, 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 Court, you're a unicorn. But I'm really not. That's the thing. Like a lot of times, I explain to people. They're like, "Oh well." Like, "Oh well, your parents went to college. Your grandparents. Your great grandparents." But everybody I grew up around mm-hmm. is like that. People don't realize. Like, just a lot of people have this monolithic view of the black community. And it's like, no, it's just like the white people. You have people at different socioeconomic levels. You have people who have old family money and you have all these other things. And people don't realize like the affluence and the culture and the richness. If I showed pictures of like the parties my grandparents used to have like in their segregated neighborhoods while they were like, you know, when they weren't worried about somebody bombing the house, you would be like, oh, wow, this is so rich. Like when you look at Harlem, not like the Harlem Renaissance and things like that, like there's so much beauty even in all the pain that we go through. And I'm like, I'm not a unicorn. I know thousands of people, like, I mean, I don't personally know, but like when I look at all my parents' friends and everything they've accomplished and everything their kids have accomplished and how hard they've had to fight, and, you know, I live in Atlanta, which is like, in America, like, if you're Black and you really want to, like, get somewhere and really make it, come to Atlanta. Like, people don't realize Black women are, like, one of the most educated segments of the population. The amount of Black women who have master's degrees, MDs, pharmacy degrees, nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists, PhDs, it's unbelievable. All my black female friends have at least one master's degree. See, but but that that needs to be celebrated. See, even me, right. even me, I'm like, well, you're a unicorn. Clearly, you're not. But I don't uh-huh. see that. I don't see that in my day to days. I don't see that with my um my core group of friends. I I I don't see that on a day to day basis. You know, that needs to right. be celebrated more than yeah. than it's not. Also, I think that's beautiful. I think you're amazing, Court. I mean, everybody in my family. Like, even going out to my extended family, everyone has, like, been to college. You know, people are like, oh, well, no one in your... I hate it when people... People don't ask white people, is anyone in your family in jail? They don't ask that. People ask that of you? People have asked that. Well, oh, nobody in your family is in jail? It's like, no, but even if they are, that does not mean... That's not That's not a normal question to ask a hu- an adult human being. Right, but you wouldn't ask. It wouldn't even enter someone's mind to ask a white person that. Right. But right. No. the narrative and what people see and what's happened with sentencing things and mass incarceration, they 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 feel free enough to ask that and free enough to ask so many ridiculous things. And then they think that means something about your family or makes you less than if you were to say yes. Right. You know? Right. So uh, let me ask you a question. What would you say? to a, a Caucasian listener, uh, uh, somebody of that comes from white privilege, whether you understand it or not, that's where you're coming from. What would you tell that person? Like ha- how to, how to connect, uh, what to say, what not to like, would you have any advice for, for that person? What I would say is to take the time and take the responsibility on yourself and go find some of the resource guides that people have made or of articles of journal articles about racial issues in America, racism in America, how like systemic issues in America. There are a lot of a lot of resource guides going on right now. And I would just say 
you know, don't be so defensive. Like, there can be two truths. You can say, I want to make, you can see something within yourself that you don't like and also say, okay, I want to change this and make it better. You know, I need to really look within and you have to get rid of the fragility. And if someone, and here's a big one, if a black person is telling you how something you did makes them feel concerning race, listen to them. Don't Please. Act like them. Don't tell them <laughs> Please listen. About what you did. You take on what they did, absorb it, reflect on it, say, hmm, how can I do this better? Because even the best of us have to make adjustments. I mean, so I would just say, like, listen, don't, and oh, this is the biggest one. Do not center yourself. It's not about you at all. That's it's about absolutely what racism is. It's not just enough to not be racist. You need to be anti racist. Yeah. I know from friends, they're like, I have white friends who are like, well, you wouldn't believe some of the conversations I'm, I'm around. And I'm like, well, what did you say? Right. Like, what did right. you say when somebody hey, was being Silence racist? is acceptance. It really right. is. You have to say something. You know, you look, if you're just allowing evil to happen, that's pretty evil of you. It is. Because to me, you know, what really bothered me, so many things bothered me in that video. I can't watch the whole thing. It's it's, it it's rough. Officer Tao standing there, basically with his back turned, and you're like, y'all hear it? Like you're supposed to protect and serve. It's not just to protect and serve some. I have never like felt like if I've been in danger, I've never like, ooh, let me call the police because I know they're going to take care of me. Right. And I'm a person. A black person of a certain amount of privilege, and I even realized, you know what? Oh, well, I'll figure it I'll, out. I'll figure this out. I mean, if it gets to be like real, real bad, I'll call them. Yeah, I still get that uh, a little bit of discomfort in the pit of my stomach mm-hmm. when I see a cop. You know, it's just just with my interactions, and I'm a very fair-skinned Puerto Rican guy. You know. Yes, but you still. I guess it's because I'm used to so many people who look similar to you, and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well. He's of some ethnicity. Right. You're going to get treated differently. Like, I'm for sure. Is, but I know he's not white. Yeah, no, for, for sure. That's, 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 it's, it, it, it's, so again, that, that's where I always put my, um, myself in other people's shoes. Right. This is happening. This stuff hap- has happened to me. Right. Very fair skin who's been confused several times over with a white guy. Again, I don't understand it, but that, that, that's, that's a thing. Okay. Right. It's happened to me more times than I, I care to even share. Right. Um, I can only imagine what happens to my dark skin friends. Right. It, it, it's, it, it blows my mind. If this is happening to me, oh my gosh, what's being said and what's happening to them? It, it, it's so uncomfortable. Like, I didn't realize for a long time that you could get arrested for a traffic ticket. Until I was in college and I was riding around, my boyfriend in college, he was about my skin complexion. He's he had light eyes. He was really tall. We were driving. He did a rolling stop. They pulled him over. And he was like, okay, yeah, officer. He was like, get out the car. They arrested him for rolling stop. He's a college student. These were his college police officers. He was a student there, his college police officer. So then I'm standing there and I'm like, 
I'm like, well, officer, how am I going to get home? He was like, I don't know. Because then they decided to impound the car. I was like, well, can y'all please take me back to my dorm? And so then you hear him telling him, yes, she ain't going to get any of that pussy tonight. Excuse my language. Oh, my gosh. And I'm standing there like, um, well, how like how am I going to get home? And they were like, we'll take you home. Then they thought like someone finally acquiesced. I was like, I can't walk home. Like, I'm too far. Like, what do you want me to do? They're like, fine, we'll take you home. I was like, well, can I? Can I ride in the front? No, get in the back. So I'm in the back and like it was silent. And I was just sitting there like, what is going on? I can't tell you how many times in college, I think he might have gotten arrested like three times for traffic, for things that could have called called for a traffic citation. Awful. I hit college police. Knowing that he is a student. That doesn't happen to very many Caucasian people, if any. Now, and it's not bad things don't happen to white people. No, these things don't happen to white people. They just don't. They just don't. Right. And the thing is, when they do have interactions with the police and they go wrong, it the like you know the fuse to get to that point where it goes really left mm-hmm. is a lot long. Is very long. Right. It, it, well, I, I'll, I'll say this. It's happened to me and it's happened to several of my friends. It goes from zero to my hand is now on my gun. You know, it, it's that's second. that's very uncomfortable and it's very scary for, you know, a, a young ethnic man. It's 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 shocking. You know, it's it's a simple question. And oh, wow. Are you going to pull a gun on me for asking what? a innocent question? It, it's it's uncomfortable. That training, something needs to happen there, you know. But I really feel like we're in the middle of, of this change. And I do have hope for, like, I, I do. I, I I feel helpless a lot. That's why I decided to kind of, like, you know, use this platform to kind of help give, you know, um, uh, people of, of color a voice and a platform to share what it's like, what really goes on during all of this, you know, and and, and have you uh, share your feelings. Because I, I, feel, I feel helpless. Like, I want to do so much. I want to educate the masses. I want to hug the world, you know. But it, it's right. it, it seems helpless. But I take a step back and I see all the traction that all of the steps that are being made, all the steps we're taking forward. It's it's beautiful. It's it's pretty crazy right now. It's really heavy. It's really intense. Yeah. It's shocking. It's very very uncomfortable. But we have to be uncomfortable right now. Yeah. We, do. we do. This is this is lifting weights. Court first time you have to lift the, after ever lifted a weight. You're like holy shit. That is that's heavy. Right. After you lifted it several times, oh wow, it's actually pretty light now. It's the exact same weight. You just got stronger. As a as a country, as a people, as a community, we're gonna get stronger. We have to be uncomfortable now, but we're going to get stronger. But what we have to do is keep having these conversations. We have to keep talking about it. We have to keep talking about it until this isn't a thing anymore. You know, until we talk about oh well, you know, cops beating uh, unarmed uh, 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 black people. Oh, I'm tired of hearing about that. Cool. What about the black people? They're tired of getting beat and murdered, you know, until that's not a thing anymore. We have to keep talking about it. We do, you know, and, um, court, this has been awesome. Like, I love talking to you. You have to let, you have to come on again because I would love to continue this conversation. I I think you're, you're fascinating. I think you're amazing. Whether whether you admit or not, you are unicorn because there's only one of you. (laughs) As people would say, thank goodness. (laughs) Court seriously you're you're one of my my like you're in my my you're actually 
one of my closest stroke friends, right? And I know that that sounds weird, but like we've been speaking for a very long time and we started with like some really long, intense conversations and it's turned into like this beautiful friendship. And I feel closer to you than like I ever have. And I love that. Like you're, you're, you're family, you know, and I want to thank you for being um, so open and honest and coming on and sharing what it's like, what it's actually like being, you know, you being a black woman with a brain injury in Atlanta in this current situation. You know, um, yeah. You have any parting words for the people, Corey? I just really want to thank you for giving me this platform, Joe, because as you know, one of my things that I've always talked about in the brain injury stroke community is that I worry that there aren't a lot of people of color who are represented. And so I don't want people to feel isolated or alone or like there aren't people who look like them who are going through similar things. I think giving a platform to people of color spent all the time is important and especially during this time amplifying those voices is really important because i mean it is different for us i mean it's sad but it's a true thing that we have to wrap our head around so thank you for giving me this opportunity and i will come back anytime you ask me to awesome yeah no that this this definitely we, we have to continue this conversation and these conversations they can't stop right the momentum there's so much momentum right now and I know sometimes it's like, oh, well, it's a sexy thing to do to protest. And I'm going to take this picture next to this burned down building and talk about how terrible this is. It's like, no, that when that when everything is fine, we need to have that exact same passion. Exactly. We, this, no performative activism. Yes. None of that shit. <laughs> we, look, we're here to make change and this change needs to stay. Right. And it's not, oh, well, these people are now going to be above me. No, we just want equal ground. We want everybody yes. to start at the same level. And we're all trying to get to the mountaintop. You know what I mean? Like, let's let's just all do this together as a community, as a people. Like, we can do this. We should be better. We can be better. And to be honest, I think we will be better. I, I really feel that, and I really believe that. You know. Well, I hope so. I'll uh, I'll piggyback on your hope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got it. I it, look. If we have hope, we have everything that we need. And I know that sounds like really like minimum. It's not. We have to have that hope, you know, and to be honest, the black community hasn't had a lot of hope. Now there's more hope than ever. See, the black community is so filled with faith and hope. That's the only thing that has carried us through this entire time. You know what I mean? I, I Yeah, for sure. You can make it from where you are and you get promises and you're just like, okay, well, you know what? One day it's going to happen. One day I will be seen as human and as much of an American and a patriot and everything as everyone else. Gore, these are those days. Your parents, when you ask them, did you ever think, you know, and that, well, I never really thought that these are the days, what they hoped back in the day that there's going to be real actual change. I really feel that it's coming court. I really feel that what they never thought would be is coming to fruition. Now people are tired. People are fed up and people are growing it's uncomfortable but people are growing just want to see those policy changes that's what we have to have policy changes people vote yes vote the full ballot from top to bottom national top to bottom we're not going to build this castle on sand you know we're going to set the foundation and and it's we're gonna make this work you know we're, we're, it's it's a process. It's a slow process. It's uncomfortable, but we're going to make this work. And I'm going to be doing this with several other um, members of the Stroke Survivor community, several other um, uh, black men and women. Oh, 
yeah. uh, from all around the country. I'm really excited. You know, uh, I've got a blogger, I've got a teacher, oh, cool. I've got a model from all over the country. I'm really excited to get these conversations going and hear their perspectives of what's going on in the world. You know, when you come back court, I actually like to talk a little bit about um, uh, COVID-19 and how it's like uh, oh, affected yeah. your day to days. Cause we didn't even get into that. I know. The, these, these I'm are long passionate about, right? Yeah. These, these are long, passionate, strong conversations, but they, they need to happen. They are, you know, and again, the neuro, the neuro nerds, this podcast is always the lighter side of things, right. you know, because there's so much dark. Like I always, always want to come at, at it from a different angle. Not that this conversation has been dark. It's not, it's just honest, right. you know, it's not happy go lucky, but at the end of it, there's hope, you know, and I, I'll say it a million times. We have hope. We have everything. Court, I, I absolutely adore you. I think you're you're incredible. Thank you so much for doing this, and I can't wait to do it again. Okay, me too. Thank you so much, Joe. All right, and where can they find you on social media? Oh, at Hello Kitty three four eight two. I know it's very uh very adult, and or <laughs> at um Rewired two Boom! There that is. Uh, that'll all be in the show notes. Um, you can reach out to Court. She's literally—I mean, you heard her. She's one of the most amazing people in the world. She's oh, just like me, always here to help. And that being said, the Neuro Nerds—we are always here to help. You can reach out to Lauren at Lauren El Manzano on Instagram. You can reach out to me, Joso Rocks everywhere. You can reach out to us, the Neuro Nerds, at everywhere. <laughs> this is heavy. Yeah. This is real, real heavy. But I have mm-hmm. hope. And I have faith in us. We can do this. We can be better and we will be better. Courtney, I love you. You're the best. You. On, Thank you. On that, awesome. We are connected. This is the, the first of um, many podcasts we'll be doing together. Note, this neuro nerd is out. Awesome, Court. That was cool. That was, that was, that was fun. I hope you had fun. I did, yeah. It was cool. <laughs>